Factories require quality assurance work. That QA work can be accomplished by a robot with a camera together with computer vision. This allows for sophisticated inspection techniques that do not require as much manual effort on the part of a human. Arie Barnahama is a founder of Elementary Robotics, a company that makes these kinds of robots. Arie joins the show to talk through the engineering of elementary robotics and his vision for the future of the factory floor. We're looking for writers and podcasters for Software Engineering Daily. If you're interested in either of those roles, email erica at softwareengineeringdaily.com. We'd love to get your applications. Aria, welcome to the show. Awesome, Jeff. Thanks for having me. You work on elementary robotics. Explain what you do. Yes. So I'm CEO here at Elementary, where we focus on automating quality assurance and quality control with visual AI and robotics. And what does that mean in more detail? Yeah. So in detail, as physical things get made in the world, they're going through production lines and we are really helping those brands and manufacturers drive new insights around, you know, which parts pass inspection and can be put together into an overall product to make sure we're limiting failures or cosmetic issues that reach the final customer. So we're helping things get put together appropriately and making sure there's no defects on those parts as they get put together. But then also we're really trying to help drive insights for our customers so that they better understand kind of the root cause as well of where where these issues might be coming from. So overall, trying to reduce scrap and waste in our industry and really you know, superpower manufacturers to make quality goods. Quality assurance for physical items has historically depended on manual inspection. How have improvements in robotics changed quality assurance? Yeah. So there's this joke in the industry uh, regarding manual inspection that if you ask 10 inspectors what a defect looks like, expect 11 answers. And all of these jokes obviously have a bit of truth to them. And that's because, you know, on, on the manual side, you can think about sitting there looking at an item all day, every day, you've got visual fatigue, you've got mental fatigue. And so there's, and, it, and generally it's also somewhat subjective, something that I think is a defect, you might be looking at slightly differently. And so all of this kind of adds up to just general inconsistency in inspection. And so bringing tools that are kind of data-centric tools like machine learning and then automation allows you to take some of the subjective nature out of that to make things more repeatable and data-oriented and then allow those humans to kind of put their knowledge into the system and then operate quality and operate root cause, which we just touched on, which is a bit more of the kind of high-level goals as opposed to just the actual visual eyeballs on the product itself. Tell me more about some of the recent developments that have made it possible to use AI for quality assurance. Yeah, so there are some exciting developments in AI that have continued to accelerate this. I think, first of all, just the overall maturity of AI and use at scale. And so just at the very beginning, before even kind of any new architectures, there's just the maturity of AI as a technology that can be deployed into production, the tooling that needs to be used for that, the data handling. And so all of kind of the pipes to make AI possible have accelerated to allow this to be more scalable in an enterprise manufacturing environment. And then there's also 
new research that a lot of us are looking at or making use of in the industry that's kind of cutting edge around using lower data sample sizes. So not every manufacturer, when you go in, is going to have a data sample of thousands and thousands of objects already built for you. And so you've got to be able to get useful and, and start providing value with lower and lower data sample sizes. And there's a lot of research in that space that's also having an impact on our ability to apply it in manufacturing. What are the areas of QA where computer vision is mostly utilized? So by that, do you kind of, I guess for our audience, the difference in terms of what I think you're asking on the computer vision side versus machine learning side is there are traditional computer vision use cases in quality assurance and manufacturing that are a bit more rigid. So things like edge detection, blob detection, presence detection, um, some computer vision algorithms for dimensioning. And so whereas machine learning is more sample based and kind of labeled data and training based. And so there are areas where these computer vision tools can be quite useful given a very rigid set of rules that you know you're going to be inspecting for. And so generally, I think you can think about the two, computer vision versus machine learning in that way, of how good could a rules-based system be to find these defects versus are you looking for more generalized things and you don't want as much of the rigid rules-based system and you want a more flexible system. And so it's our job to find the balance between those two. What's the goal of elementary robotics? Yeah, so we are focused on allowing visual AI to be as easy to use and easy to deploy in the manufacturing world as possible in order to make better, more scalable products. And how did elementary get started? Yeah, so taking a step back, just a bit of background on myself as it leads into that, I previously co-founded a company called Melon, which allowed me to do everything from live in Shenzhen, China for six months and bring up manufacturing production lines, ship thousands of units of hardware. We were the startup in residence at IDEO, the design firm where I really fell in love with design. So we were the startup in residence at IDEO, the design firm. And then eventually Mellon was acquired by a private equity firm and we got rolled up into a company called Daiquiri, which had raised about $500 million working on industrial augmented reality. And there I really fell in love with these use cases in the industrial world. And I specifically saw a lot of maturity and scale that could be had on the computer vision machine learning side that was happening in AR, but wanted to bring that back and apply that to robotics and, and use robots for how we could bring this amazing kind of software on the CVML side to life in the manufacturing world. And so that was some of the initial inspiration behind elementary was using robots to bring to life some of the great software I had seen in computer vision and machine learning. Elementary started with investments from some companies as, as customers. How has the development process been with those companies that you started out with? What were the requirements? Yeah, it's, it's really awesome having these customers that are also partners early on in the life cycle because it really enables us to do diligent customer discovery and, and have really deep discussions around pain points and problems and integrations. And so I think we've learned a, a tremendous amount from that. And 
as a kind of design and product focused founder like myself, it's it's always great to be as involved. You want to be as involved with customers as you can be as early of a stage as you can be, get as much feedback as possible. And so it's been super beneficial to us as a company and allowed us to make sure that we're solving real problems for, for real customers. What does a 3D inspection entail? Yeah, so one thing that's really unique about elementary systems as you're kind of bringing up here is our ability to do inspections of 3D objects from multiple angles given the integration between our vision systems and our automation robotic systems. So we have the elementary gantry, which allows us to do 3D motion and then pairing that with vision systems that are then able to take these multi-angled inspections. And so you can imagine in automotive, these are big, very different geometric shaped parts. And so you can't always just say, hey, I'm going to take a top-down static image of this. You really want that flexibility and you want to look at things from different angles. You can imagine even as a human, when you're looking at your iPhone, uh, I always use this example, but this isn't exactly it, but when you're looking at your iPhone and there's a scratch on it, you can't always see it. You have to move it, look at it in different angles, hold it under different light to actually be able to see that. And so similarly, these multi-angled inspections can really drive value to finding new defects in kind of different ways that you might not have been able to previously. What kinds of inspections are done on products for Q&A? Could you maybe give an example? Yeah, so there it, it varies across industries, but things that kind of stay consistent are there are assembly inspections. So were all of the right pieces put on this product? Was this product assembled properly? So there's the assembly verifications. There's also kind of final inspections. So things like was the label put on properly? How does it look cosmetically? Are there any scratches that a customer wouldn't otherwise want to see? Are there any defects on the paint that a customer wouldn't otherwise want to see. So it kind of, as you think about how a product gets put together, there are different inspections that run throughout those stages of the assemble of that process. So assembly uh, and all the way through to kind of final cosmetic verification. Elementary has human in the loop at the core of the design. Can you explain what human in the loop involves? Yeah, absolutely. Great question. So on the machine learning side, as we've all seen, there is still a requirement in a lot of cases where someone needs to be doing something like setting a threshold or labeling data. And so you brought up earlier in the conversation that many inspections have previously been done manually. And to that note, you want to take that knowledge. You don't want to just rely on the data that is coming in, but you also want that human knowledge that's kind of been learned and you want to still keep that in the loop, have that manage what's going on, have that label data and set the proper thresholds for that production line because each production line is going to behave differently. And so you still really want to keep the human in that system to oversee it. I think Google has a great study about doctors plus machine learning make the most accurate predictions on x-rays as opposed to just machine learning or just doctors. And so kind of similarly, we want to keep that human in the loop and have them be a part of the analysis as well as some of the kind of longer term root cause insights that are being driven. Tell me more about how a remote inspection works. 
Yeah, so especially given where the world is at right now, remote is super important because it's hard to get boots on the ground in factories at the moment. And so you definitely want to be able to use IoT networks to be able to support your customers remotely. And also what one thing we focus on is enabling our customers to be able to support themselves remotely because even some of them are having issues getting in their facilities. And so just having that flexibility where they can access our devices remotely is super interesting and definitely providing value back to a lot of our customers. What does the hardware component of elementary consist of? Yeah, so definitely for for those listening, check out our website, uh, elementaryrobotics.com. We show some of our hardware solutions there. We show the elementary gantry, which is a five degree of freedom system that allows kind of this multi-angle inspection that I was talking about earlier. So it's it's basically path planning and moving a camera around an object for these 3D inspections. And what were the functional requirements when designing that hardware? Yeah, that's where, to your question about pulling in customers early, just really digging into diligent customer discovery of based on their requirements. So what sizes of their parts, what speeds of their production lines, and then how do we fit all that together and make these machine learning inferences? What compute does that mean? What resolution on the camera? It's this multifaceted problem space where we had to work all those together, kind of like, you know, in, in any of these hardware software products, it's there's always these trade-offs between what do you solve in hardware, what do you solve in software, how flexible do you make it and scalable versus focused and vertical. And so we had to work through a lot of that problem space and are continuing to as we continue to grow our product offerings. So elementary robotics can make 3D images of a product to detect defects. How does the initial data collection work? Yeah, so as you set it up, uh, it's it's running, it's really easy for the human to program, first of all. And so you can go in and you typically have a sample object and you can program it around that sample object. And then on the data collection side, once you have that set up and, and easy to run, you can run it in a data collection mode where you're not trying to make any inferences in the beginning. You're just collecting the data needed to then go deploy your inspections. And so that's where that kind of human in the loop piece comes in again. How much data do you require for a specific product? Yeah, I wish there was a hard and fast answer to that. It's less and less every day for us as a company, but it also depends on the type of product we're inspecting and the inspection requirements. But generally, we're not talking thousands of images like some machine learning classifiers we're talking tens or hundreds of images. So significantly less given our machine learning approach, but still, you know, you need a a robust sample size to be able to test on and, and have confidence in. What types of machine learning models do you utilize? Are there, are the inspection images compared to like a baseline, just like you would do in, in GANs? Yeah, there's a couple different approaches here, but we generally focus on anomaly detection for our customers. So learning what good looks like and then being able to, from there, find anomalies and defects on their parts. And are there separate models for separate kinds of tasks? So the models and the inspections that we offer to customers and let them set up are 
yeah, focused on the type of inspection they're trying to run. So if they want to be running anomaly detection, that's one piece. If they have data and want to run a classifier on a specific type of defect, that's another inspection they can set up. And so it is driven by the type of inspection they're setting up. Tell me more about how a model gets deployed. Like, is it getting deployed on premises or is it getting deployed at the edge or is it getting deployed to cloud resources? Yeah, our models run on the edge largely due to just the speed requirements and inference requirements on our systems in the manufacturing environment. Okay, and tell me more about the edge deployment. What cloud provider do you use or or what a, what kind of edge infrastructure do you use? Yeah, so we have the cloud piece and that's where we do the retraining, so it doesn't have to be you know, some customers want their server running on-prem, and so you can do that. But so somewhere you're doing the retraining as you've collected the data. And then we kind of over our IoT link are pushing that back to edge compute where we're running the models and making these kind of real-time inferences. That edge compute, I think right now our models do run on NVIDIA GPUs, um, but then kind of flexible in terms of what we're using on the CPU side. What does the architecture look like in more detail? Yeah, so elementary is pretty focused on automation and scalability. So we've tried to take that into our software side as well. And we largely work around kind of a microservices approach to make things flexible and and adjustable in terms of how we're deploying different modules where, just as we just discussed, kind of edge versus cloud. And so we try and make that possible given It is a world where different customers that we're deploying into, where different customers have very different requirements around where compute can live and where data can live. And so with that approach, just trying to enable all of those different types of deployments. So what happens when you're doing a QA and a defect is found? Yeah, so on our side, we flag that, obviously, and we store that data and we save it as a fail. We, it then depends how we're integrated into the customer line, whether we then send them a signal, maybe to their PLC system that controls their production line, maybe to something else where either that's kicked out and then sent to rework, or that's kicked out and put in a scrap pile. Um, Hopefully we're catching it early enough where it is kind of sent to rework on the earlier side and it's not a big change for them. And so... We're, we're generally flagging that for them. And then depending on their production line, there are different processes that they might go through with that part. Elementary can also help find and define new defects. Explain how this works. Yeah, so that largely comes back to your question around CV, you know, computer vision versus machine learning. And so the, the rules-based approach versus the anomaly detection and machine learning-based approach and the ability to on the machine learning side, it take a more data-driven approach to finding defects where it's finding these anomalies that you might not have programmed the rules to find, but now because they're different from what the system has learned good should look like, they're getting flagged to you and you can start seeing, hey, maybe we did really have a problem in our process and we are finding defects or anomalies and we just didn't know to be looking for those. Tell me more about your stack for the back end. Yeah, so at a high level, happy to kind of share that I think to your question earlier, which really hit home on what's super important right now during COVID. On the back end side, we have 
enabled this kind of IoT link, which is super important these days, not only for our customers, as I kind of mentioned previously, but one other thing to add in there is just how valuable that's been for us as a company. So, you know, during these more remote times, we can't always be co-located with robots. Sometimes we've shipped them home with people, but, you know, you've also got to be able to remote in. And so we can do remote testing, remote development and deployment over that kind of IoT link. And then, and that's been super valuable to our development team. And then obviously, you know, from there, there's all of the remote data access and storage in the cloud. And so just really enabling that to be a more IoT-centric device has been super valuable to us as a company. And can you tell me more about what cloud services have been useful to you? Yeah. Now, we're very customer-driven, and so every customer kind of has different thoughts around which cloud we use and kind of if maybe they're already using a cloud. And so we have worked to this point to enable that for, for multiple clouds providers, just given really wanting to enable our customers. But on our side, you know, obviously you can imagine we're working through with these different cloud providers that all have solutions around that machine learning piece, the data handling, retraining, and data storage side, just, you know, as you think along the lines of massively scaled machine learning image-based backends that's kind of and, and cloud pieces that's that's where we focus our efforts currently but any when, when you're looking at your stack like are there any service like i don't know tensorflow or more SageMaker or you know some database that has been particularly useful Sure. Yeah. I mean, on, on the ML side, our team is definitely centralized around PyTorch and the services over there. So you've been in stealth mode for a while. You recently became publicly commercially available. How has the reaction been? It Yeah, it's been awesome. I'm really excited to come out of stealth mode, makes talking about what we do easier. And so it's been really great and, and great to just be more open with customers and see their interest come in. So that, that's been really awesome, and I'm very glad we finally came out of stealth and uh, are able to share the message more broadly. What has been your biggest technical challenge so far? Yeah, robots are really a full-stack problem. So that has been a really awesome challenge to solve, and I think part of what gets our engineering team so excited to work on this every day is just... You know, you're integrating all the way down to embedded devices running motors and running all of the kind of controls code all the way up to, you know, through the system, through the embedded ML, all the way up to the cloud and the interfaces and web app. And so it just a very broad team skill set and kind of diverse backgrounds that we pull from to enable a full stack solution like that to, to work together. And then, you know, you go through your own testing and your own QA and have to make, be able to find if you're crushing bugs, are they on the hardware side, the software side? And so really enabling great full stack development has been a, a challenge and, and something that we, we love working on and kind of gets us excited every day. Where do you personally spend the most of your time? Yeah, as most kind of founders and CEOs, it's always shifted over time with elementary as we've continued to grow. I do stay really close to customers. And so there's kind of, uh, especially now as well too, there's just a huge focus for me over there. So rolling up my sleeves and, and working with customers and trying to 
always be listening to the voice of the customer and making sure we're solving a big problem for them. But also, as I mentioned earlier, I kind of fell in love with design in the early days of my first company when I worked out when we were the startup and residence at IDEO. So still really love the design, human-centered design side to this, the interfaces that we're building, the product side, and kind of collaborating with the product and engineering teams. So I, I love that and I'm super passionate about that side. But continue, you know, as we continue to scale, definitely am kind of laser focused on the customer and customer growth side as well. What does that design process look like in more detail? Yeah, so on the design side, we, you know, it's it scaled as we've scaled as a company and so kind of matured the process to have specs and requirements and interviewing customers to understand their problems, trying to get all of that information up front so that as we go into the visual design process, it's based on data that we've then collected and then going through the user experience into the then user interface design and making sure that all fits within the overall architecture of the system and then working with engineering to make those trade-offs always of what the dream design does and looks like and behaves like versus you know how do we implement it and and the timelines for those things and so there's a lot of data we're pulling in externally and then a lot of internal discussions and trade-offs that we make through the process and kind of you end up with a really multidisciplinary result to push the design forward can you tell me more about what programming languages you use yeah it is Again, back to the full stack piece, there's a, a bunch of different teams contributing. And so uh, there are different places that are more or less specialized. I said we used PyTorch and on the machine learning side, obviously Python is very widely used. And so that team's kind of deeply integrated on the Python side and that carries throughout the stack to some degree. But then as you get closer to the robot and the embedded side, you start you know, programming more on the uh, microcontrollers, embedded C, C++, and kind of dig in over there to get things performant. And so it, it actually does scale. Uh, and, and we enable most of that through this microservices approach that I was kind of mentioning. We have this internal piece called Atom, which is our kind of internal core microservice OS. What does that mean, internal core microservice OS? Yeah, it's just... It's basically our internal OS that our systems run off of that is a microservice architected approach to allowing these different modules in our system. You know, you've got the ML module, you've got the camera module, you've got the embedded compute module to talk to each other and to do that through different programming languages. Tell me more about that communication layer, that unifying communication layer. Yeah, well, our CTO would probably be able to dig into that a lot more. But what I would say is you can visit our GitHub and actually see some of that. So that's probably the best way for people to dig into it. Can you give me your perspective on the future of the factory floor, what it looks like in a decade? Yeah, that's an awesome question. So I am really excited about a more and more data-rich factory floor. And that's what I'm seeing. And that's kind of where the trends are going, and that's really where elementary is also trying to help our customers. So a data-rich factory floor where we can close the loop on more systems, that data is getting fed back into decision-making, fed back into designs, 
and just really kind of closing the loop on a lot of what we do based on what's being collected and outputted and you know where anomaly detection is running and things you're finding and then making more real-time changes based on what you're finding and the final product being shipped out is still being tracked and fed back into manufacturing and overall just creating a, a stronger feedback loop uh, around that more real-time data is uh, a vision of the factory that I find extremely compelling and, and, and I'm working to help build with elementary. Do you see yourself expanding into products that would fulfill other areas of the factory? No, we're really vision AI driven right now. And so, and there's a kind of a huge market in front of us to, to grow there and a lot of problems to solve. And so at the moment, we're just kind of laser focused on that. What are the other adjacencies in the computer vision area that you could expand into? Yeah, cameras are used a lot with robots right now. So not areas that we're expanding into, but there's a lot of robot guidance, robot ML plus cameras for picking and, and closing the loop on different robotic systems. So there's a lot of other areas robots are kind of closing the loop on, on robot systems, but currently not areas that we're, we're looking at or planning to go into. We're just really focused on kind of any area where we can be applying elementary systems to provide more insights around product quality, product inspection, and uh, quality assurance throughout the, the factory floor. You've mentioned cameras several times. Do you build those cameras yourself, or is there an off-the-shelf provider you can go to for cameras? No, we don't build the cameras. Cameras are... are super specialty. And so we do use industrial cameras and have kind of partners on on that side of the world that we work with. And what is the market for off-the-shelf cameras like? Is it competitive? Is the cost dropping? Is the cost prohibitive? Is it already cheap? Tell me more about that. Yeah, I think the market for off-the-shelf cameras is really interesting. There is, we are using industrial cameras and so they're not super off the shelf. Um, you know, there's some websites you can go to and order them, but you do build relationships with these custom with these companies as well. And they're not cheap in the sense of that it's the same cost as the camera in your cell phone, but overall the costs are going down just as camera use cases are just scaling. You know, as AI scales, as vision scales, camera use cases are scaling. So I think there's a really good ROI in our industry for these types of use cases, although you've also got to get the compute to the right price point. And you got to take that full stack approach that we were mentioning to get the overall system there. But there are some really great camera providers out there on the market that are constantly pushing that forward. Do those cameras all have similar APIs or what is the typical API between a camera and the software you build around it? Yeah, they don't, but they usually expose a lot of similar things. So, but they, they all have slightly different APIs or languages that they support. And so there is some custom customization around different cameras. And are there any bottlenecks in camera technology like you know, I don't know, frames per second recording rate or something that's important for improving the fidelity of downstream engineering applications? I would say currently less on the camera side, more on actually the compute and inference speed side. So more on the latencies around making the decisions and less on the core camera piece. 
Yeah, can you elaborate on that? So like we're talking about PyTorch, you know, Python is not the fastest language, but I don't know if the interface between Python and Torch, I I don't know what Torch is actually written in, maybe it's in C or something, maybe the underlying infra that's executing is faster, but maybe you could tell me more about the inference side of things and how that, how that. Yeah, and and while all that's in Python, um, you can still kind of, once you've got the trained model, you can definitely kind of take that down and shrink it and kind of get it running embedded and and use different techniques to get it running faster embedded. And so it it doesn't have to be based on PyTorch and kind of those architectures. You can definitely push to get it faster given you're trying to make edge inferences. But still, you know, there's just some limits even as fast as you get that around running ML on the edge, passing data back and forth between CPU, GPU, shared memory, and kind of how all of that adds up to speed of inferences that you're able to make. But I will say, you know, a lot of people are doing a lot of great work in this space outside of elementary as well. NVIDIA is doing a lot of great work here. And so that is definitely an an active area that people are pushing forward. Tell me more about your perspective on the machine learning ecosystem. What are the shortcomings? What is machine learning getting really good at? Um, What are you intrigued by? Yeah, Based on deployments and kind of just being customer focused right now, I think something that's always on my mind is just data handling and pipelines. And I think that's still a super important piece of making all of this work and scale. Now, I obviously love reading all the latest papers and looking at self-supervised learning and different ML approaches. But at the same time, I think on the really practical side, I find just how do you pass data around? How do you label it? How do you deal with data sets and manage data sets uh, is still just super important and, and really fascinating to watch where that tooling goes. And then generally as a ecosystem, the machine learning side, I just am super excited about where the where everything is going, where the community is going, where research is going, and uh, am really dedicated to seeing that continue to scale and help enterprise businesses. If I'm a QA tester at a factory and my factory uses elementary robotics, what does my job look like? Yeah, so you asked earlier about human in the loop, and I think that's kind of the key. We we see two different things. One is quality managers and, and quality technicians moving towards operating multiple systems, overseeing elementary systems, and helping relabel data, look for root causes, and really kind of manage quality now through something that helps them scale up in terms of throughput, and then also uh, focus on other areas and focus on other problem areas or areas that need their support throughout the production line. And do you see the role of robotics as augmentative to the QA tester, or does does it obsolesce the QA tester? Yeah, I'm very focused on and and convinced it's augmenting the QA processes. So everything from, as I mentioned, like you're you're shifting those people to still managing these devices. They're managing the thresholds of the inspection, uh, digging into the data for root causes, as well as there are certain times people running QA also have an assembly task. And so now you're shifting them back to having more of their focus on the assembly task and giving them more time than having to kind of split attention and, and multitask between two things. So I think it's it's kind of either enabling them to do more 
of other work or enabling them to manage higher throughput quality through the system. You have one of the most impressive web pages I've seen together with a, with a loading bar uh, because it's so graphically intensive. Could you explain a little bit about what people would see if they went to the elementary robotics homepage? Yes, I would definitely check it out because as you mentioned, it is very visual and there's a lot of motion on there. And so I don't know if, if my words can even do it justice. It's definitely, it's elementaryrobotics.com. And what we really tried to do with that was just showcase this motion plus vision concept. So that's that's why it's graphically intensive and, and has different animations is to give people, as you scroll through our website, a, a visual input insight and kind of look into running inspections of 3D parts and kind of multi-angled inspections. And so we thought it'd be to really help tell the story, we wanted to build that into the website. Can you tell me about building the proof of concept, the first version of the elementary robotics camera system? Yeah, so we've built a lot of different first versions throughout our time at elementary as we've iterated through and kind of gone through diligent customer discovery to, to find that right that right product market fit. And so in the early days, as I mentioned, you're kind of we were putting in place the infrastructure and architecture to enable all of these different systems to work together. And so uh, I think that was kind of the early engineering lift was enabling that architecture and infrastructure that would say, hey, you can use motors and motor control with cameras and robots and different gears and joints. And so really kind of taking that full stack approach to enable all of that and then balancing the, hey, we, we also know these gears are probably going to change and some of the motors might change. And so kind of balancing that, hey, we're building the first version with, uh, we also and, and we want that to work so that we can get customer feedback, but we also know things are possible and likely to change. And so how do you allow for that flexibility in the future as well? And so those were a lot of the different trade-offs and things we were thinking through in the early stages. Tell me more about some of the hard canonical engineering problems that you run into at elementary. Well, I think there's always a question, and this is just a, a general enterprise enterprise startup question of uh, integrations. And I think everyone's running different stacks, whether it's different ERP systems or it's different PLC systems controlling their production line. There's always different integrations and it's you know, as a as CEO, it, it's always my job to look at the roadmap and sit there and say, when do different integrations make sense? You know, we know they're possible, but given the engineering resources we have, balancing integrations with new feature development, just trying to make those right trade-offs and what unlocks the next tranche of customers, the next value prop to our customers. And so how do we balance that alongside you know, maybe they the next customer really runs a different PLC system than we've ever integrated with, but also we've got to prioritize some other core software engineering work. And so I think that's something I think all enterprise companies deal with is making those integration trade-offs, um, given that customers, you know, there's usually one, there's the 80-20 rule, there's usually something that the majority of people are using, but then you always run into those different cases as you scale to more customers. Are there any other canonical engineering problems, things that you're seeing today that you think you will be seeing again and again and again in the next five years? I think even as machine learning gets better, there's just always going to be improvements there. There's always going to be 
How do we use less data? How do we augment our data? And so I think there's just open-ended questions there that we'll continue to revisit. And I think those are exciting challenges ahead for us. Do you spend much time reading papers or talking to researchers? Or do you feel like most of your consumption of machine learning stuff is further down the pipeline? It's like well-developed, productized machine learning. Yeah, so we've got an amazing advisor that we work with on the academic side. And so we chat with him and, and you know, pick his brain, see what's coming down the pipeline. And that's that's been an, an amazing resource for us to have. And then, yeah, I, I'm known for pinging out over Slack channels just, you know, at all different hours, the things I'm finding online as I'm just looking through papers and publications uh, maybe there's a new conference and kind of who won best paper. So I find all of that fascinating and think you have, you know, that doesn't mean we're always implementing it, but I, I love being aware of it, reading it and kind of discussing it all with the team. Let's scale back and return to the beginning of our conversation. Could you just run through in more detail what happens in the production pipeline where elementary robotics is involved? Yeah, so scaling out to a little bit more of a 10,000-foot view of a production line, you've got parts coming from suppliers that are going to get put into whatever you're producing. So you've got these kind of supplied components, and you want to verify that those supplied components are good before you put them into your product. So there's an opportunity for a QA there. Then as you're assembling your product out of those parts, there are verification steps throughout that process to make that you can use QA to make sure, hey, did we put this together properly along the way? And then at the end, you've got kind of the final piece. Okay, it's overall, it's been assembled. We've verified it along the way. And now we want to do final assembly verification. And overall, that's usually where cosmetics can come in more. And how does the overall final product look before we ship it out the door? And so there's just multiple areas throughout that stack that you can be looking and, and kind of running quality. And let's again return to the future. So let's say five years down the line, what is in the future of elementary? What are the specific fields that you're excited about? Yeah, so great question. As we mentioned on the what's hard part, I also think that's a huge opportunity for the future, which is that ML is continuing to grow and evolve, whether it's the techniques, whether it's synthetic data or being able to run more kind of simulated in terms of training and how that augments the data that we need to be collecting. And so I think there's a lot of opportunity for growth there to just continue to invest in the core principles of what we do at elementary around ease of use, ease of setup, time to ROI, and so things that I think we continue to invest in and grow just to make our customer experience better, easier, faster, and continue to unlock more value for our end users. Can you tell me a bit about the sales and integration process? So let's say I'm, a fa I'm running a factory or I'm operating some multi-factory process engineering facility set What's the process for, for getting a sale closed and then getting integrated? Yeah, so we work pretty hand-in-hand -hand with our customers right now, especially being early-stage enterprise company. We, we really want that voice of the customer. So early on, we're talking to them, understanding their pain point, 
understanding their where they're struggling with inspection, where they'd like to augment their current capabilities, whether it's improving throughput or improving yields and finding defects they weren't finding before. So really just understanding the problem space at the beginning. And then from there, being able to work with them to scope that out and scope out, you know, what does the line look like? How are parts being fed? Um, and, and what are we integrating with overall? Has transfer learning been useful at all to you in getting, you know, one model to be essentially reused by another system? Not at the moment, given our current architecture. Uh, I don't believe so. But yeah, I, I don't think at the moment we're we're digging too deeply into that, just given kind of the initial architecture of what we're doing. You mentioned edge computing a little bit earlier. Do you see any potential to use things like Lambda at the edge or like Cloudflare workers or Cloudflare key value stores, any other edge computing products that that might be useful to you? I definitely think we can continue to explore edge products. And so, yeah, I think there's definitely a bunch of those that could be interesting and I know on the engineering side, our, our CTO and that t- our team are continuing to look into kind of performance at the edge and different solutions there. Also, NVIDIA's putting a bunch of work into enabling, obviously, great, you know, performant edge solutions and scalable edge solutions. So uh, I think it's an area that a lot of companies are investing into, and and we are totally happy to work with and, and partner with others on that and, you know, make use of what the community is putting out in that space as well. Do you work with any human-in-the-loop infrastructure providers like Scale AI? We don't at the moment. Could you see that happening in the future or being useful? Possibly. Definitely always keeping an eye on it. I know Scale is on a really exciting trajectory, so definitely watching it and, and thinking through where it could potentially be useful for us either now or in the future. Cool. Well, Arya, it's been a real pleasure talking. Do you have any other subjects you want to discuss? Uh, things that in, in elementary's trajectory that I haven't really thought of to, to mention? No, this is awesome. I really appreciate it. I think I would just mention that, you know, if this idea of full stack solutions and full stack problems resonates with you, the idea of deploying machine learning to improve quality and kind of improve yields throughout manufacturing and to bring visual intelligence to manufacturing. If any of those either challenges or workspace really resonate with you and and to the listeners out there, please check us out. Would love to talk to you either over LinkedIn or, you know, look at our job board and see what opportunities are out there. We are hiring. We did close a series A recently led by a, a great VC firm threshold And so we are definitely growing and it's an exciting time here. And so just anyone out there would love the opportunity to see if there's a fit on the elementary side as well. Okay, Aria. Well, it's been a real pleasure talking. Thanks for coming on the show. Cool. Thank you so much. And I really appreciate it. It was a lot of fun.